0: This is episode number 579 with Dr. Warda Inam, co founder and CEO of Overjet. Today's episode is kindly brought to you by Z by HP, the workstations for data science. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host. John Crone, Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's guest is the brilliant engineer, computer scientist, and AI entrepreneur, Dr. Warda Inam. Warda is co-founder and CEO of Overjet, an AI startup that has raised $79 million in venture capital to transform dentistry with machine learning, enabling dental care to become more precise, more efficient, and more patient-centric. Previously, she co-founded Ulink Technologies, a startup behind AI-driven power grid systems. She has also served as lead product manager at QBio, a VC-backed AI startup in the healthcare space, and is a postdoctoral researcher at MIT's renowned CSAIL, the Computer Science and AI Lab. She holds a PhD also from MIT in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. Today's episode focuses more on practical applications of machine learning and growing an AI company than getting into the nitty-gritty of machine learning models themselves, so it should be broadly appealing to both technically-oriented and business-oriented folks. In the episode, Warda details how Overjet not only classifies images but quantifies dental diagnoses with computer vision, enabling models to answer questions like, how large is this cavity? Um, She also details how natural language processing can be essential for determining the correct dental diagnosis. She talks about the data labeling challenges firms like Overjet need to overcome in order to enable machine learning models to learn from noisy real-world data. She provides her tips for building a successful AI business. And she fills us in on what she looks for in the data scientists and software engineers that she hires. All right. You ready for this jaw dropping episode? Let's go. Warda, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Where in the world are you calling in from? Uh, So I'm in Los
1: Altos Hills in California.
0: Nice. Is it uh, beautiful this time of year over there in the springtime?
1: Pretty much. Yeah, it's so beautiful most times of the year.
0: Uh, Lucky. I don't know. I, uh, I could be working anywhere now since the pandemic. We've decided to not go back to offices. We have an office, but we only use it like occasionally. For some reason, I'm just still stuck in New York. Like, I, 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 I put up artificial walls around like, why I can't go somewhere beautiful like California or like Colorado or just enjoy the outdoors. I just look at cement all day. Maybe that's what I like. Um, so we met in New York actually. So we met at the Scale Up AI conference, which was held by Insight Partners in New York. And it was, it was walking distance for me. So I lived downtown. And I was able to walk over to that conference. And we met at lunch. So you were getting ready to go on stage and speak. And I was just interrupting you while you tried to eat <laughs> <laughs> and uh, found you really fascinating and asked you to be on the show. And you said, yes, and now here you are. Thank you.
1: No, no, thank you for having me, Tom.
0: Um, So you're the co-founder and CEO of Overjet. Overjet has raised $79 million from the likes of Insight Partners themselves, from Crosslink Capital, from General Catalyst, So it's a really um, fast growing venture capital backed company using machine learning, using artificial intelligence to innovate in the dentistry space. So I understand that the name Overjet itself is kind of an inside term that dentists use, but I don't know what it means. Can you elaborate on what Overjet means?
1: Yeah, so Overjet is a dental term. Uh, So basically your top teeth are in front of your bottom teeth for your bite to close uh, properly. And that distance is around two to three millimeters. Uh, so if you don't have that uh, distance between the top and the bottom, your bite is not going to close properly and you're going to have pain. If you have it too much, then you will have buck teeth uh, where people might make fun of you. So it, it is about the like precision of dentistry where you need to have... Uh, in, Millimeters matter a lot, uh, and even the two to three millimeters matter. So we, you know, chose the name primarily looking at the precision in dentistry and ha- and how measurements really matter.
0: Cool, that is a really good name choice. Um, so yeah, so Overjet is a clinical intelligence platform driven by machine learning for precision dentistry, as you say, is the Overjet name uh, belies. So you've mentioned in other interviews that the lack of agreement on treatments by particular dentists makes dentistry more of an art than a science so how can machine learning uh, used by companies like overjet improve this situation and turn dentistry into more of a science yeah, no uh,
1: that's a really good question john so especially in uh, dentistry it, it's present uh, in other healthcare fields as well where diagnosis, uh, there's a lot of variation in diagnosis in general. So two dentists looking at the same information might disagree with each other on what they're seeing. A lot of it is because it is, uh, you know, they're eyeballing distances and measurements, they're making subjective decisioning. And this is where the revision really comes into play for us and especially what Overjet does, which is quantify disease. So uh, at Overjet, we actually quantify disease rather than just detecting disease. Uh, So for example, if we're talking about uh, bone loss, It's a measurement, uh, you know, that's a bone level above a certain threshold. And once you can measure it, now you're talking about, you know, we both can agree anything above, say, 2.5 millimeters will be considered bone loss. And once we measure it, uh, there's no subjectivity there. So what we're doing at Overjet is we're quantifying disease that helps us make very objective decisions that help help us make uh, better decisions for the patients themselves. And uh, that helps move the industry more towards... Uh, a science and also move, move towards more evidence-based dentistry as well.
0: Super cool. I love that. So it's not just classification. We're kind of, we've as machine learning practitioners, we see lots of examples, even in kind of early machine vision problems and data sets that we work with. We're often working with classification. So, you know, is there a tumor present in this tissue or not? Um, in your case it could be, is there a cavity present in this image or not? And so overjet goes beyond that. It's not just image classification, it's quantification. It's saying, uh, yeah, how many millimeters of bone loss do we have? Um, how large and- is the
1: cavity? How does that interact with the rest of the, the tooth, for example? Uh, similar to like, uh, or, or you do detection as well, right? So you'll say, okay, is there a cavity in this particular area? That, that's one, but then we go a step further and we say, you know, how large it is, how it re- relates to the anatomy, how much of that crown area of the tooth. Uh, has been decayed uh, so we can actually get to very accurate decisioning uh, based on uh, the, the measurements.
0: That's super cool. Sounds like it would be a tricky machine learning problem. I guess we'll get into that later in the episode, um, particularly around, uh, you know, getting sizes accurate in images, that kind of thing. That comes to mind to me as something that would be tricky uh, when we've labeled the data. Um, so, as a specific kind of example um, of a specific kind of dental disease and how overjet can make an impact, um, I'm aware that every year there are three million cases of periodontal disease in the U.S. alone. So that's about one percent of people in the U.S. Um, are diagnosed with periodontal disease. Um, in an interview last year, you mentioned that periodontal disease is likely heavily underdiagnosed and. Um, So what are the drivers for this underdiagnosis and what role could data and machine learning play in identifying those currently undiagnosed cases?
1: Yeah, no, uh, it's a here periodontal disease according to the cdc uh it's more than 40% of the uh, adult population above 30 years has periodontal disease so oh. um we, we think that's a little more than what, what's actually what we see in the data so i think uh, probably cdc needs to um uh, update these metrics but uh you know if you know here what on one side you're saying it's 1% what we're seeing in in uh, in the practices is around 5 to 7% but the population that in, that uh, we're seeing that has the disease and should be treated is much much higher. So it is right. one of probably the most uh, underdiagnosed diseases in in the U.S. Uh, particularly, but also in the rest of the world. And uh, why is it so important? Is that periodontal disease is um, also linked to diabetes. It's also linked to cardiovascular health. So the it's basically an infection in your mouth that leads to inflammatory response uh, uh, and uh, here it causes other immune system to to go a little haywire as well across across your whole body. So it is something that is very very important, uh, and it has been well studied why it's so important to 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 actually not only diagnose but also treat. But it is going uh, under diagnosed. Here, where overcheck comes into play and uh, computer vision helps is. First is you know we we need to be detecting the disease. I mentioned I started the conversation with bone loss for example. And that's one of the most important metrics when it comes to me- measuring periodontal disease. It's, it's after you know after the infection uh, has been there for a bit. Uh, your your bone uh, uh, you start to have start to have bone loss that could lead to tooth loss and other issues as well. And uh, uh, when you're eyeballing. This, uh, you know, even if you're the tooth is slightly, uh, 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 you know, aligned differently, you might uh, one person might say there's bone loss, the other person might say there's no bone loss. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's also in this diagnosis, there's also the hygienist involved and the dentist, so there are two parties involved, and they're also taking other like hundreds of other measurements uh, uh, when when they're making this diagnosis too. So there's a. Every practice we've entered into, yes, the the practice does underdiagnose the disease. And uh, where Overjet helps is we identify for every patient, every uh, measurement that is needed to make the diagnosis. And if we find some of the data uh, which is present and other might not be, either has not been collected, we can flag them to collect that. If all the information is there and the treatment uh, has not been identified, we will flag that for the practice as well to, uh, to look at or, or, and uh, help determine whether there's predominant disease.
0: Whoa. So not only does the Overjet platform just receive information and help with diagnosis, diagnosis based on that information, but it can also provide feedback to the users. So it can say to a dental practitioner, hey, we are missing a piece of information in order to be able to make this diagnosis properly. Please obtain that information and provide it to us.
1: Yeah, no. Uh, so here, exactly. Not only do we uh, identify disease or quantify disease, but we also first help uh, make sure that the right data is present. So the right protocols are being followed. The right data is present to make uh, the diagnosis. And if there's some indication uh, of disease and and the complete data is not present, we will uh, highlight that to the uh, to the to the dentist or the hygienist, whoever is in the office to be able to collect the right information so that we can provide a complete uh diagnosis and treatment uh, planning option as well.
0: That is super cool. Um, Do you have any other kind of informative use cases, Warda, of how machine learning or data science plays a role in the Overjet platform for for preventing or identifying um, some kind of dental condition?
1: Yes, I think the way uh, uh, what Overjet does is we look at every condition that can be found uh, on uh, 2D X-rays uh, uh, currently, and we are also working on the other uh, formats uh, in, in the future. Uh, cool. But uh, but here, you know, one of the important use cases or applications for it is actually in the insurance space. So not only do we work on the practice side uh, to help uh, to help practices perform better, uh, but we also uh, help insurance companies uh, run their operations more effectively as well. Uh, right. And currently, they, for example... Uh, all this information manually so you have uh, dental reviewers who look through the data so if say you go and get a crown or you need a crown your dentist is going to submit that information to the insurance company the insurance company is going to have a dental specialist and then a dentist look at it the dental specialist will say is this the right information the dentist will say okay if this is the right information is this the right uh, uh, is there medical necessity and if the answer is no they'll uh, they'll not pre-authorize the treatment if the answer is uh, is is yes and you have uh, the condition, they will pre-authorize it as well. This is all very subjective, it takes a long period of time uh, and uh, and it's very costly and overjet uh, and, and AI here solves this issue and, and automates this process so that it can happen uh, much faster uh, much more cheaply as well as more accurately such that uh, it's, it, these are objective decisions being made.
0: Super cool. This episode of Super Data Science is brought to you by Z by HP. Get rapid results from your most demanding datasets, train data models, and create data visualizations with Z data science machines, which come in both laptop and desktop workstation options. The data science stack manager on these Z by HP machines provides convenient access to popular tools and updates them automatically. So, this helps you customize your environment easily on either Windows or Ubuntu. Find out more at hp.com/data science. That's hp.com/data science. All right, now back to our show. Uh, I wasn't aware of that uh, application space, but uh, that makes a lot of sense. Being able to not only automate and improve diagnosis in the dental office, but also allow the dental insurance companies uh, to be streamlined as well. Yeah. Super cool.
1: And and with that, like I think that's been our uh, that was our claim to fame actually when we started off. So uh, uh, right now we're serving about a majority of the top carriers, representing about a hundred million members. So that is half of the U.S. population's data is going through now over wow. just platform in order to make a determination on whether the the claim is appropriate or not.
0: That explains <laughs> the amount of money you've been able to raise, Warda. Um, so are there any particular kinds of challenges? That you deal with that are particular to the problems that you're tackling? So, um, you know, are there things that crop up in your space that are kind of interesting problems that impact uh, machine learning?
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of it was one of that, which you mentioned earlier as well, which is that variation of diagnosis. And why, why that's a problem is not just because we're helping solve it, but it's a problem when we actually annotate our data as well, right? So if, three dentists look at the same condition one might say a certain thing another might not uh, might say another thing here there are different approaches to it right you you can try to get a consensus you can have like multiple dentists agree then you can have a old radiologist try to get a consensus um uh, or, or you can actually use all the the labels uh, and feed them to, into the models and let the models learn what what is the right information or where you might have uh, a a lot of the disconnect there we we've tried different approaches, and interestingly enough, we're actually finding that uh, which which we haven't seen much in, in the literature, but we're finding that uh, just uh, not going through to a consensus, but actually feeding a lot of the, this information uh, to the models and like letting the models learn has been uh, uh, has gotten us better results. Uh, and uh, and and what we do make sure is, of course, we have to make sure all the labelers are uh, well calibrated and they they're um, reviewing. Uh, based on the guidelines that were provided, et cetera, as well. Um, Another thing very interesting that we have to deal with is uh, uh, the the quality of the data as well. As I mentioned, uh, we deal with insurance data, and insurance data is, uh, you know, 70% of it is digitized, so that will come in a digital format. 30% of it is basically Analog data that has been digitized in some way or uh, other, where they have actually scanned it. Uh, that they, they might have then printed it out on a paper. They might have folded it. Then they would have put a, would have put a, a tea or a coffee mug on onto that page. Then they would have scanned it again and sent it off to the insurance company. So you 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 know you, you can't be sure what you get at the end uh, the other side. So we have we have to deal with a lot of like. Uh, 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 data which is uh, low quality in terms of the resolution, but also in terms of all these artifacts that might appear like disease if it it was disease. And uh, we have to build a lot of uh, very uh, robust models uh, that help uh, identify these conditions, but also crop these uh, things out, uh, rotate them, make sure that they're um, oriented correctly, make sure that the data is in the right format for us to actually make any kind of diagnosis or quantification that we need to make.
0: Cool. Um, Yeah, that does sound like something uh, challenging. So how do you resolve something like that? How do you deal with uh, a coffee mug stain uh, (laughs) artifact in an image?
1: (laughs) So, so sometimes, you know, of course, like if it's a, a lot of times it might be on the, you know, the, there might be uh, an x-ray image on, on a paper and there there might be a copy mark on where, where there wasn't the image. So you can actually just crop it out. So we have, uh, uh, models which detect where the actual information is and everything else ca- kind of get, gets cropped out, uh, and where we can, you know, uh, determine that or just like we build, um, you know, we, we have train with a lot of data as well uh, to be able to and a lot of uh, noisy and messy data as well to be able to learn these different artifacts and that, that they don't matter. Uh, so it it, it is a, a challenging problem and we heavily rely on augmentation, et cetera, too, to make sure that uh, we gotcha. can uh, create different conditions as well. Uh, but it is something very interesting and uh, something we have to deal with uh, all the time.
0: Yeah, data augmentation seems like a great uh, way of overcoming the issues in that kind of scenario. Um, And yeah, it sounds like lots of big challenges and lots of data for data scientists and machine learning engineers at Overjet to be working with. So there might be some listeners out there who are thinking it would be a pretty cool place to work. And I'll have more information for them (laughs) later on in the show. Um, for now, I'd like to stray a little bit away from technical machine learning questions uh, to kind of a general question about Overjet, which is, um, what was your experience as you began providing tools to the dentistry industry? So were you kind of welcomed with open arms or was there a lot of hesitation to, um, to what you're doing to automating um, what has historically been a manual industry?
1: So previously, I was in the uh, medical imaging space, so MRI data. And when you are dealing with AI in for MRI, uh, radiologists uh, are threatened. Uh, so they're threatened for you know they they believe that you know AI will take their jobs. And and if you look at it, there there is some truth to it, right? Uh, which is the fact that that's what they do. They look, you know, radiologists' main uh, uh, goal is to diagnose uh, on. Uh, Uh, Radiographic information. Um, What what's different about dentistry is dentists don't think of themselves as uh, radiologists. Uh, They think of themselves as surgeons. Uh, So yes, they diagnose uh, on X-rays. So they'll you know they'll spend some time, maybe a minute or two when they're with you uh, while you're in the chair to look at that information. But most of the time they spend is either chatting with you to explain that information to you, or they're spending drilling in your mouth or doing some kind of surgery. So the interesting thing is, you know, which is unique about dentistry, uh, that uh, dentists, uh, the way that dentists perceive themselves, helps us in terms of they think of all these things that they can be, they can uh, if technology can help them uh, do these things. They are uh, they do um, accept it with more open arms than you you might see in the other healthcare fields. So that's been an advantage to us, and just in general in dentistry as well, because you have had less technologists focused on it uh they they do feel that uh that uh you need more technology in dentistry and and good technology uh they've they've had uh uh technology which is you know it seems like it's from the 90s etc and software and now when they see uh exciting cool tools they're actually uh Gravitating towards it, so in terms of timing, I think it couldn't have been better for us. uh, Where uh, at least for now, uh, we haven't had that kind of resistance that I saw in the medical side, and that helps us, uh, of course, uh, sell more uh, more easily into into these companies. But also for them to use it so that they can actually improve the lives of people as well.
0: That's awesome, and I'm so glad to hear that difference. It hadn't occurred to me that there would be that difference, but as soon as you explain it, how. The dentists have this broader range of functions than just doing diagnosis of images that's actually just a small portion of their job and so if you can make that part of their job easier then they can focus more on surgery or on um, bedside manner on dealing with patients and uh, helping them get through what could be <laughs> a traumatic drilling experience mm-hmm. um so you mentioned there um working previously um with uh, medical diagnostic imaging with, um, with MRIs. So was that at QBio? Yes. Um, so yeah, so that was another startup that you were involved with prior to Overjet. Um, and that's a company focused on simulation and quantification of human physiology. So, um, how is your experience at QBio helpful for co-founding your own startup and running your own startup later on?
1: Yeah, no, I think it was, a. Uh, um, uh a very interesting experience uh with it was uh that the startup was started by a, a second or third time co-founder uh, f- or founder uh that meant uh you know funding was easier other processes were easier but what i learned i think uh, from that experience was how important it was to hire great people and how you had to go out of your way to hire those great people uh mm-hmm. so even you know in this case even though it was founded by this third time founder whose last company was a firm worth I think billions of dollars. Uh, he still like to uh, to recruit me. He flew all the way, you know, had a, a, a chat with me while I was still like right out of uh, school in that sense. But you know, he he, he felt that that was important f- uh, for the company at that time. So I think that was my biggest takeaway from the company, uh, and I think that has helped us succeed as well because. Uh, uh, for me, it, you know, once we identify who we need to hire, then I'm going to go out of my way to make sure that we hire them. Uh, and, uh, and that has led to uh, the success at Overjet as well.
0: Cool. That has been a recurring theme recently on the episode. We've had a number of guests recently who have said the big driver behind their startup success was hiring the right people. And so, yeah, it's great to hear you reinforcing that message here again today. And I love that idea of especially in this world where we've gotten used to now, being able to stay home, if the CEO of a company flew out, and came to see me in my city, I would be, you know, I would instantly think, wow, this person really is really does see me as the future of their company. And I should really be seriously considering this opportunity. That's great. and That's really good uh, advice. Um, so in addition to The many patents that you filed at Overjet and no doubt the innovation that you were involved with at QBio, you've made inventions in other fields as well, Warda. So um, as an example, um, during your Ph.D. at MIT, you uh, you worked on autonomous microgrids. So this is a solution to helping people who lack access to electricity. So today there are about 900 million people on the planet that do not have electricity. And so it sounds like these autonomous microgrids that you're involved in the development of could play a role in ameliorating that situation. And I know you have some experience with this hands-on because you ran field tests in rural India. So um, I think you're the right person to ask how do microgrids work and how could they solve this electrification problem?
1: Yeah. So uh, what we started off on this problem there were 1.2 billion people who did not have access to electricity i don't think we actually got got it got it down to 900 million but there has been a lot of work in trying to electrify the areas which don't have access to electricity mm-hmm. um microgrids in general were uh basically an interconnection of uh, electric systems which which could help provide uh, electricity in a very low cost manner uh, to uh, to the areas uh, where uh, The autonomous piece came about because we were uh, not only identifying what were the the loads and the sources, so that means the solar panels or what were the kind of um, uh, loads such as lights or fans, et cetera, that were connected onto the system automatically and then helping control uh, what is called demand response, like helping control the demand in such a way that we can Best utilize the resources such that we maximize uh, the use of uh, electricity. And and the cool thing about these systems were that they they didn't need did not need any planning. So for example, if you look at the the grid system in the U.S. or any developed world, you'll, you know it has gone through a lot of planning. That's because it was done. Back in the day, where you needed all the planning to really structure everything, but could you have uh, with the current technology? Could you have self-learning grids where you could understand what was happening, who who was getting connected, what source was getting connected, and then re-architect itself to provide the best electricity or wow. or uh, uh, and at a low cost. Uh, the interesting thing is this actually uh, not only is uh, a problem uh, in, in in the devel- develop developed World, but it got used in uh, in Australia and other areas as well because um, microgrids are more important. Uh, it, you know, especially after you've seen the California fires and electricity mm-hmm. and shortage, etc. So mm-hmm. you have grids which are. Which can be disconnected from the the main grid and then self function and uh, and self regulate uh, the power there as well. So for um, so at Ulink where we were, uh, you know, not only was I doing my PhD, but we were also commercializing this technology and uh, and working with um, uh, both uh, de- developed world power uh, uh, systems as well, but also in the developing world where we helped uh, uh, electrify some villages where we would. Go and install the systems, and and help provide the electricity there, and improve, uh, 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 basically prove, provide a proof point on how low electricity can can cost if you actually did not have to uh, build for that much robustness, but you actually built for uh, maximizing the the time that the load was available.
0: Wow, that sounds like such impactful work. So you were doing that during your PhD was this related to your experience of the Harvard Innovation Lab
1: So no at, at Harvard Innovation Labs uh, that's where Overge, uh, uh, overjet got started oh. uh, so uh, so after finishing my PhD I was uh, more focused on clean energy uh, and that's where the microgrid work came about but uh, I realized that I really wanted to work in healthcare as well so after finishing my finishing my PhD I uh, I, I I did a postdoc in uh, in uh, in healthcare at CSIL working on uh, h- how do you use uh, electric uh, wireless signals to detect breathing, heart rate, uh, and use machine learning uh, on that uh, uh, to to identify different uh, issues of medical conditions or other issues that might be identified. Uh, so I, I, I made a conscious effort moving from uh, clean energy towards healthcare. Uh, and that was the transition I, I made and then uh, when when Overjet started, we actually got incubated in uh, Harvard Innovation Lab for the first two years. That I was see. an amazing opportunity.
0: I see. I see. I see. I see. So let me try to, to recap. I'm probably going to get some part of this chronology wrong, but you can correct me where I get it wrong. So while you were doing your PhD at MIT, um, part of your research was on these autonomous microgrids and you co-founded Ulink Technologies to commercialize those autonomous microgrids while you were doing your PhD. Absolutely. Got that. Okay. And then after you finished your PhD, you did a postdoc at the renowned CSAIL lab at MIT. We've had a number of guests on the show um, from CSAIL. Most recently, uh, Professor Tim Kraska in episode number 571, um, he was talking about collaborative no-code tools um, that he had developed for data scientists at CSAIL and was now commercializing. Um, so CSAIL, yeah, one of the best known computer science and AI labs in the world, if not the best known. Um, and so you were there doing a postdoc after your PhD um, and that allowed you to make a bit of a transition from the, uh, from the el- electricity work um, towards healthcare. Absolutely. Okay, and then from there, from that postdoc, you made the jump into um, a healthcare startup QBio, which we talked about. So um, that was the company working with um, medical diagnostic images um, with MRIs. Um, so what caused you to make that jump? How did you uh, make this transition from academia into the entrepreneurial space? Was that something that you kind of always knew you were going to do?
1: I really wanted to have an impact uh, and you know, have an impact in my life. Uh, I, you know, and academia is great, but a lot of the things you know take a long time to uh, to manifest in the real world. And for me, the most uh, exciting thing is when uh, something I build is actually gets utilized. Uh, right. And uh, and because of that, I always was even while I was doing my PhD very attracted to entrepreneurship and doing things on the side and trying to commercialize different uh, ideas, et cetera, because that, I think that's just been uh, what's gotten me very excited. And uh, and then there was a pivotal time where I had to decide you know, whether academia or, or industry. And uh, I, I gravitated towards more uh, trying to have uh, more impact in the near uh, short term future.
0: That resonates with me, Um, (laughs) having done a PhD and then gone into industry, I completely understand how, yeah, things can sometimes, not always, but can often feel like they're moving a bit slowly in academia. And yeah, it certainly doesn't happen very often that an academic raises $80 million to be scaling up their uh, dental machine learning startup. So I can see why uh, you went down the path that you did, and you certainly are making a massive impact. For the, um, it's awesome to see. Um, so then uh, after QBio, you then got involved in the Harvard Innovation Labs program after that. Yeah. And so did you go into that Innovation Labs program with this dental uh, machine learning idea in mind? Or is that something that came out of the incubator experience out of the Innovation Lab experience?
1: No, so we went into it uh, with the idea uh, in mind. Uh, so I basically, uh, the way it started was I, I went to a dentist uh, and uh, the dentist gave me a treatment plan, which was very different than what I had received before. Uh, and uh, that got me interested in dental diagnosis and why there was this variation. Uh, and I asked for my x-rays uh, and started understanding, you know, reading X-rays 101, uh, and uh, realized that there was a huge uh, uh, variation. Uh, you go to 10 different dentists, you're going to get 10 different opinions, and, and wanted to solve this. Uh, so I left uh, QBio, bio uh, knowing that I wanted to work in dentistry, knowing I, I wanted to help uh, improve the care that was being provided. Um, and, and then I started working on uh, Overjet, uh, and, and the idea started forming more. And then we applied to... Uh, Harvard Innovation Labs with the idea i don't think it was a completely uh, you know uh, evolved uh, to where it is right now but at least we 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 knew what we were trying to do
0: cool and then so what's that like um, i guess let me let me actually ask a question in two parts so it sounds like you keep saying they prior to applying to the Harvard Innovation Lab so um You selected co-founders, I guess, before you applied to the Harvard Innovation Lab. So how did you decide on who your co-founders would be?
1: So um, one of my co-founders, we had just worked together uh, at QBio. So I knew him. I had worked together with him. He was heading competition. I was heading product side. uh, So we knew we worked together. He had gone off to work at Amazon after that. uh, And so I uh, started... uh, uh, as the idea started to form more and more, I started uh, connecting with him, and we started brainstorming more about it. Uh, and uh, and and then the second person was a dentist, so uh, <laughs> which was of course needed in this process as well. And who mm-hmm. uh, was also from MIT and and Harvard, so uh, we had some connections there. Uh, and uh, and that's how it came about.
0: Nice. And then um, once you got into the innovation lab program. What was it like uh, experiencing that? How was it helpful for getting Overjet rolling?
1: Yeah, so I think for us, it was very crucial uh first because we did not have funding uh, and we got a space to work at and this is pre covid so uh you know you didn't want to work at home as well and you wanted a place to to work so we had a place uh to work but also there was mentorship around it and i think what i really loved about the the innovation labs was the fact that they actually rather than focusing on teaching you entrepreneurship they were focused on enabling you to, to uh, do your startup uh, uh, more effectively uh so anything that you needed to make that happen, uh, whether it was you know some uh, sessions that were happening that you could just attend or there were VCs coming into the iLab to, uh, to think through your ideas, et cetera, so that you were surrounded by other people who were doing the startups as well, uh, who were not just, uh, it wasn't a school project for them. Uh, and, uh, and, and to make it better, there were a lot of people around you who were helping you support and, and, and build your idea further too.
0: Nice. Nice, that sounds like an amazing curriculum and no doubt um, had a big impact on your ability to develop and scale over JET effectively. Um, I also noticed that when you were doing your MIT PhD earlier, you mired in entrepreneurial management. We had a little bit of a conversation about this before we started recording, so I thought it might be fun uh, to reflect your thoughts on air. So um, while doing that MIT PhD, you minored in entrepreneurial management at the Harvard Business School, which is renowned as it's probably the most prestigious business school in the world to be able to get into. And so it sounded to me like that could be a super valuable program uh, for helping you get going with any startup. But it sounds like uh, you might think real world experience is actually a lot more valuable than learning about entrepreneurship in the classroom.
1: Yeah. And so I think that this is something that I, uh, you know, I, I because I was always interested in entrepreneurship and, you know, with being in school that long, you actually want to learn as much as you can as well. So uh, I I did, did take uh, quite a few entrepreneurship courses. And what I realized was I, I, at least uh, they were very focused on the early stage, like the idea refinement, et cetera, or, um, uh, or just like thinking of it on paper. And I think, especially with entrepreneurship and, and starting a company, you know, the, the real uh, uh challenges and and how you have to overcome them and and uh how you have to still go you know even if on paper something doesn't look right, even then still going forward with it and believing in it is so much more important. Uh and that was something that uh I I felt that lacks in 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 school, but I you know uh but it's I think something that is uh, getting improved with things like Harvard Innovation Labs where, where they give you a, uh, an opportunity to really build out your uh, company forward uh, uh, that, that, is, that some other schools can also like, leverage and, and learn from.
0: Nice. I love that answer. Um, so for people who are listening, who might like to get their hands dirty uh, in an entrepreneurial opportunity and see how it works... Um, if people want to join Overjet as a data scientist or machine learning engineer or maybe some other role, um, uh, are you doing any hiring, and what do you look for in people that you hire?
1: We're absolutely hiring, and we and I think as uh, uh, you know we we have a high bar in terms of uh the people we want to hire uh but you know we are uh we have many many roles open even if you don't see it on the website we are hiring for uh any and every role in, 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 in <laughs> related to data science machine learning computer vision natural language processing uh which we didn't get into but that's also what we, some things we do um so please do uh apply here uh what we really look for is uh people who uh not only are good at uh, that particular skill set but also w- uh, have ownership like want to take ownership of the problems we are a startup that means uh, you know that ownership piece uh, uh, is very important to us uh, uh, and and also like believing in, especially people who believe in in the problem uh, that we're trying to solve and i think uh, if you have the, the three i think you're a sure shot uh, fit for overjet uh, even if you don't have i think you know when people join overjet they uh, they, fell in, uh, they fall in love with the mission that we're trying to uh, uh, that we achieve here because I think it's something that's extremely needed uh, for healthcare and for everyone, including us, because everybody gets impacted by poor um, oral care if, if, that's, uh, uh, if that's the situation.
0: Everyone's got a mouth. Everyone's <laughs> got teeth. <laughs> um, yeah. So the three things that you look for are the technical skill set, obviously in, you know, for whatever the role is, data science, machine learning, engineering, maybe NLP engineering. Um, The second thing is taking ownership of problems. And the third thing is believing in the problem being solved. Um, So, you know, we didn't talk about natural language processing earlier. I didn't know about that aspect of what you do, but the show isn't over. Let's squeeze it in. (laughs) How do you get natural language processing involved in dental care?
1: So not only do we actually look at images, uh, uh, that's one part type of uh, diagnostic uh, data that's uh, present. We uh, yeah, actually I look at the uh, the dentist notes as well. So these course. are narratives, short, uh, short form, not not grammatically correct, uh, and all the issues that you have in healthcare notes uh, that we have to deal with, and we process that information uh not only on the practice side but also on the insurance side uh to make better uh, diagnosis because not all information might be present in, uh, in an x-ray so for example like a fracture a fracture does not you don't see it in an x-ray but that might be uh, written in in the note uh and you know this is dentist writing these notes so it it does not appear as uh, the, the right spelling and the the way you would see it it uh, appears in all different ways uh and you have to deal with that kind of uh uh, uh, language as well.
0: Nice. I'm glad that we squeezed that answer in. Uh, but yeah, now we are reaching near the end of the episode. So regular <laughs> listeners will know um, that it is getting close to that time when I ask for a book recommendation. So Borda, uh is there anything interesting that you've read lately that you can recommend to our listeners?
1: I think the uh, book that had some impact on me was uh, Being Mortal uh but until mm. Gwande, uh i think it's a, it's a deep read so i won't uh uh you know uh, it's it's not a light read and i think you probably can do it uh over a holiday or something uh, because it really makes you think and really makes you think about your life and you know uh, especially the the last uh phases of it uh, right. where even if you're not going through this you have family members who have gone through this and people you love etc so it is uh it, it is a book that makes you think about life
0: Uh, more deeply. That sounds like a really good recommendation. It is something that, uh, that, yeah, I think on deeply from time to time. And I actually, I had many years ago, um, one of my best friends did a course um, at university on grief, death, and dying. And it was quite off piste relative to the other things that he was studying. And he would not shut up about how valuable taking that course was for his appreciation of life, And uh, yeah, being mortal. So that sounds like a great recommendation. All right. So Warda, you're tremendously successful. You are a brilliant speaker, you're working on amazing AI problems, and scaling them up, making a big impact across the world. So uh, I'm sure there are lots of listeners out there that would love to hear more from you. So how can they follow you online?
1: So uh th- thank you to, for for that, John. So uh, I am on LinkedIn and Twitter uh, at word and my first name, my last name. Uh, so those are the two uh, areas that people can connect with. I you know you can also email me. Uh, it's my first name at overjet.ai. Uh, so you know happy to help.
0: Nice, amazing. Thank you so much, Warda. Thank you so much for being on the program. And maybe we can catch up again in a couple of years to see how Overjet is doing, or maybe how your next venture is is taking off. Um, we'd love to hear from you again sometime in the future. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us on the show.
1: Thank you, John, for having
0: me. Warda is so cool and such a smooth communicator of advanced topics, be they technical machine learning topics or practical commercial ones. In today's episode, we're to fill this in on how, thanks to painstaking labeling efforts and image augmentation, Overjet is able to not only classify dental images, but also quantify aspects of them. For example, by identifying how many millimeters of bone loss there are in a given tooth. She also talked about how Overjet's technology is used not only by dentists, but also by insurance companies, demonstrating how one AI platform can be useful across multiple industries. She talked about how AI solutions can reduce the underdiagnosis of common diseases like periodontal disease, how AI driven autonomous microgrids can enable the lights to stay on in areas that have been disconnected from the primary grid, how getting involved with startups could enable you to make a bigger impact with innovations than an academic career, and how she looks for data scientists and software engineers who exhibit technical know how, take ownership of problems, and demonstrate an interest in the problem her company is solving. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Warda's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 579. That's superdatascience.com slash 579. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter, and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks of course to Ivana Seabird, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang, and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another super cool episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.